there's a whole range of threats from, from the large scale things like climate change where you've got increasing sea, temp sea surface temperature, increasing sea temperature. Um, and the effect of carbon dioxide in the environment, it actually dissolves in water, in seawater. And the effect of that is that it tends to change the acidification of seawater. Um, so ocean acidification is a, is a global problem. And animals, um, plants, etc., are adapted to, to tolerate particular temperatures, particular acidification levels, etc. And if that changes significantly or quickly, then those species can become under stress and start to disappear or be vulnerable to disease, etc. So those are the big scale things. And, and if, you, if you look closer, then a lot of the activities that we, we undertake in the marine environment, whether that's transport, um, whether that even recreation, but things like commercial fishing, for example, um, extraction of oil and gas, um, extraction of aggregates, gravels, sands, um, can all have an impact on the environment if if those processes are not looked after carefully, and and go through an assessment process and work out what the what the potential dangers are, and and then we we, we mitigate the risks associated with them. There's a growing consensus now amongst environmentalists, I suppose scientists in both the field of um, ecology and, and marine life as well, that there is an ecological crisis f facing the planet um, amongst what's being coined as a bit of a, a, as a climate breakdown as well. How difficult is it to monitor the situation under the water? Because, of course, on land it's far more accessible. Definitely, and that, that, to be honest, that's always been the problem with the marine environment. It's it's difficult to see under it, and it's difficult to monitor it. It's expensive to monitor it, and so what we've found over the years is that there are long-term monitoring programs, and the Alaman government as as it undertakes marine environmental monitoring, whether it's sea surface temperature or phytoplankton in the water, or the general characteristics of of water quality. Um, and that can lead into things like bathing water quality as well. So, so we monitor the marine environment, but that it does take money. It does take a lot of effort to do that. When you're looking at larger scale events, then that needs to be coordinated over over large scale, and and those people taking um, the measurements need to talk to each other. Um, but even things like biodiversity, I mean, that's a it's a f a phrase or a, a term that's coined quite a lot. Um, what it means is the abundance of different species that live in a place. But if it's all underwater, it's really difficult to see compared to land. It's difficult to know what's there and it's difficult to know how many are there. And so monitoring biodiversity is quite a specialised, again, expensive um, activity to undertake. And some of the... So things we were talking earlier about Wildlife Week and raising awareness of what's there, then there are opportunities for people to get involved, particularly on the island, in citizen science, for want of a better word, getting involved in some of the, the, the organisations on the island, whether it's Manx Whale and Dolphin Watch, yeah. Manx Basking Shark Watch, um, and, and, and undertaking sort of volunteer work. Manx Wildlife Trust take on people to, to do volunteer work as well. So, so an awareness raising of it and actually contributing to, to monitoring what's out there certainly helps. Um, I said to you earlier, uh, there's an organisation on, on the island and around the UK called Sea Search, and they specifically monitor 
um, scientific or collect scientific data when they're on their, their recreational scuba diving. And they do it in a way which is um, standardised. So the data that they collect is really useful for for governments to monitor changes in, in biodiversity, etc. So the, this idea now of encouraging participation is is really coming at, at quite a crucial time. And again, some environmentalists are referring to this as almost a, a tipping point in the natural balance of things. It, it's always hard to to know what tipping where tipping points are coming, um, and but I think. Raising awareness of it is, is particularly important and, and taking action before things do reach crisis points. And so I, I think things like the creation of marine nature reserves around the Isle of Man, for example, is one way that we can inbuilt a bit of security into the system. So those are now areas which are quite heavily protected. Um, and so they, they become a little bit more resilient to change, if the quality of the environment is good, then organisms that live in it are much more resilient to changes in climate, changes in acidification, the threats from invasive alien species, for example. They can counter um, all of those threats a lot better than if they're under under stress. So the, these uh, nature reserves are about six months old now. Am I, am I right in saying? Yeah, they came into force in September of last year, and and the the evidence around the world is that over time. That allows the environment to recover, um, and so um, biodiversity improves or, or increases. Uh, the animals, plants, uh, algae, etc., become more resilient to, to changes. And, and the benefits that we see, whether it's from our experiences swimming underwater, swimming on top, um, kayaking, sailing, etc., and even fisheries um, benefit from from improved environment because those are the, the the grounds from which a lot of the recruitment of juveniles um, produces, and you get effects like overspill from them into into the rest of the area. So the creation of sorry the creation of these marine reserves came in in light of purported threats or in light of a need to allow our, our seas to recover. I, was it like, for example, was it cure or a preventative sort of measure? They've actually been 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 the concept of marine protected areas started way back in 1989. Would you believe back in Port Erin Bay, when the Marine Lab was undertaking experiments and they really had to protect a particular area so that the the experiments weren't interrupted. And I think over time, and that's that's really been an interesting characteristic of the island is that as those marine protected areas have 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 developed. In, in in collaboration frequently with with the fishing industry they've actually seen the benefits so they've they've seen the support the support for them grow because they've seen the benefits of them so when we get into um, identification of particular habitats or species that need protection as well then the two ideas of benefiting commercial exploitation and biodiversity and habitats and species sort of come together. So it's really been a 30-year journey to get to this point. But I think now that, now that we're leading up to it, we, we integrate it into our planning so we know that those, those exist. And that gives us resilience to the pressures of, of fishing, which we see a lot of in, in waters, not just around the Isle of Man, but but elsewhere, that we have a certain built-in resilience to it. Um, and so I'd, I wouldn't say that they, they've put in place 
as a, a quickly and as a result of, of immediate danger, but it's something that we believe underpins the marine environment and therefore that underpins the, the kind of policy and philosophy and the management of, of what we want to achieve in the future. Well, tell us a little bit about that management then. What, what does it involve? Um, because I imagine you, you've touched on there the, the biodiversity that you hope to sort of harbour in these areas and, and to aid in recovery or to enhance the current state of, of these marine reserves. But also in the same breath, you've mentioned commercial exploitation. So how, how on earth is that balanced? It, it's, it's, a di- it's a difficulty and that's what we spend our time doing. I'd probably say that in relation to biodiversity, if you leave it alone then it'll it'll manage itself nature does it better than we can so if you if you remove the disturbance events if you remove um, the the activities which are detrimental to particular species then they should colonize and 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 recover over time and, and you get restoration of the ecosystem that way by creating those sorts of areas then you free up the then the rest of the space you can concentrate on your management of of activities in a sustainable way. And I mentioned a, a range of different things that are happening in our waters now and have been for decades. And, um, so whether it's things that have a, a, a you know, a, a potentially beneficial long-term future like sustainable energy, renewable energy projects, they still have a potential impact when they're being created and when they're, when they're being run, etc. Um, and I, I mentioned fishing because that's an obvious thing. It's an exploitative um, activity that takes things out and, and we don't put things back in. It's not like farming. So we need to maintain the environment at a certain level that it can support fisheries. So that's called sustainability. Um, so our management can then focus particularly on the areas outside of the reserves and and make sure that those things are, are conducted According to um, the rules, uh, what, the rules that we, we, we've put in place for that, um, and according to a process that, as I mentioned, assesses the potential risks, risks t- that they pose to the marine environment, and that we can put in place measures along with the developers because they're, they're aware they want, they want it to be um, sustainable and acceptable to, to the public. We can put those measures in and, and make sure that the, the activities that we do undertake um, are actually done as well as they can be and that, that that's really what we think of when we're, we're thinking of management of the marine environment. When I imagine a, a marine reserve perhaps from a, a human point of view on land that's sort of recently been um, you know assigned a certain area I imagine perhaps a, a grassy field that's been said right leave it alone don't touch it um, and that you mentioned there that perhaps obviously this is this is taking place underwater, of course. But you mentioned there about the restoration. Is there any kind of active, I don't know, planting, so to speak? Because you know we're, we're talking about restoration on land. That's, mm. Well, that's allowing forests to come back. So are we talking sure. about underwater forests returning then? I, I take the point, and and the analogy is there, and it's always tempting to to interfere in it. Um, but we're we're used to managing land terrestrial environments and planting things and, and growing etc the difference i think with the marine environment is if we think of it as a as a the whole the whole system is fluid literally and things move around it in ways that they don't on land so actually if you if you have the the bare essentials there then it becomes recolonized 
and it restores itself. And that's what I meant before um, about leaving nature to, to do that work itself. It does it best. It does it quickly and, and, and as efficiently as possible. When we get involved in artificial restoration, it ends up, unless it's really urgent or, or, or critical, you're, you're generally better to leave it alone because it's it's expensive, it's intensive, and it uses a lot of, of resources to do it. And it's not always successful. As I said, if you leave nature, its species and habitats to, to restore the ecosystem, it finds its own balance. The, tri the trick is not to let the environment degrade so much that you're really left with with not much to re-establish. It's the difference between between a partially um, forested woodland or something like that um, versus a, a brownfield site. You know, the things that start to grow on a brownfield site are your basically your weeds and the really tolerant stuff. You're better off not getting to that point if you want to restore it to where it used to be. When you're touching on fisheries there, for example, I, I suppose a, a, a marine species that's sort of emblematic to the Isle of Man is, of course, the the king and the, the queen scallop sure. scallop scallop how do we say it you can you can <laughs> say it however you want um, ways. but of course to some that people will perceive well that they the scallops um form part of the biodiversity of the island but obviously to others there's the the commercial aspect to that and again touching on notions of, of health in our oceans looking at for example the the, the queenie stock where are we up to with that with that and how and what is the health of the, of the queenie stock on, around the island? Um, we monitor the, 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 the primary stocks, as you said, king scallops and queen scallops, um, with our partners at Bangor University. And we've, we've had, a, we've had a, a, a data set which goes back many, many years. So we're probably in the best position of any, anyone around uh, the British Isles to, to know the state of our stocks. It's true to say that they, they, they are lower than they have been in the past but but populations of, of scallops in particular go up and down quite a lot and queen scallops are even worse than that um, they, 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 they come and go I remember vividly 2000, around 2008, 2009 the, the stocks of queenies were really large where they are at the moment is pretty much where they've been historically but people get used to them being in abundance and, and, and so the adjustment over time is difficult but I think, again, it's the importance of long-term data sets. If we know what the populations of these animals is doing and we're actively managing the fishery, then um, we can we can take account for that and we don't get into unpleasant surprises um, whereby stocks crash and there really is, not, is nothing left to do. So I, I, you know, I've, I've been involved in several meetings, discussions lately with managers of, of, of scallop stocks and I think we're it, it is a difficult job to do no question but we're in as good a position as we can be um, to manage those stocks sustainably and and if I get back to the idea of marine nature reserves they they are not the primary scallop grounds but there are scallops and queenies in them and so they they represent a reserve population for the rest of the territorial sea and the evidence suggests that um, they produce larvae and those larvae settle within our waters and, and elsewhere. And so, as, as I said, there's a kind of a security provided by that. But one of the... 
Sorry, so I was just going to say, yeah. well, how was it received by the, the fishing community of, of Scotland? You know, the, the creation of these marine reserves. Were you treading on their toes? No, and, and I think I was, I was just going to talk about, about Ramsey Bay. It's an interesting example, and, and we've, we've presented it actually internationally as a concept quite a lot. Ramsey Bay was overfished, and it was closed in 2009. And around about the same time, um, DEFA were, were looking at creating a marine nature reserve. And so the closure of the fishery, allowing it time to recover, and the creation of the marine nature reserve sort of came came to together at the same time. And so there was essentially a, 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 an agreement between government and, and the fisher, fisheries um, to create the marine nature reserve, but including that what what we call the fisheries management zone. The whole of Ramsey Bay um, Marine Nature Reserve was zoned for different levels of protection, protecting different species and habitats. But about half of it was left over to a fisheries management project. Um, the scallops did come back and they started being fished in about 2013 again. So there was a gap of about four years. And they've come back slowly in the fishing industry. Uh, the Manx Fish Producers Organisation and, and the local fishermen here started to exploit that in a really conservative way with, with um, in collaboration with DEFA and, and with Bangor Uni. And that's grown over time and it's a really, it's a two-week fishery. It happens in December to make the most of the high prices around Christmas time. And it's gradually crept up both in, in tonnage and in value. And we're now at the situation where it, it's actually pretty much as productive as it was before the fishery closed, but the footprint of the fishing activity in there is much, much less. It's 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 focused on the high density areas, and it's a, it's a fraction of 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 the the fishery management zone or the marine reserve itself. Now that experience, and it's you know it that's essentially ten years it's taken to get to this point, and it's not been it's not been easy all the time. But I think that experience has given the fishing industry, some experience of what happens when you really carefully manage an area, what happens when you stop fishing and it comes back, um, and how you then deal with what is the the, the, the biomass, the, the stock of scallops and queenies in there is better than anywhere else on the island because it's been really conservatively fished. So when you're back up there at really high levels, you've got an opportunity to change what you do and keep it up there instead of taking it back down to zero again. So what we expect to happen with the creation of new marine nature reserves, which have small populations of scallops in them, and again, an agreement with the fishing industry that said, OK, we, we still want to retain access to most of our major fishing grounds, and we then support the creation of the marine nature reserves. So that's where we ended up. So... The fishing zones still exist, surrounded by the marine nature reserves, and you get those spillover effects. But the fishermen are in a much better position to to take the lessons learned from Ramsey and translate that into managing the fisheries in the zero to three area. And again, those lessons then feed into all of the fisheries management that happens in the in the not to twelve. So that's what I meant before about integrating marine nature reserves into the whole concept of, so they're fundamental to it, closed areas, open areas, areas which are really tightly managed, like Ramsey, the not to three, which is a little bit 
less tightly managed and the 3 to 12 which is um it's not as it was before we've reduced the number of vessels that can can go in there but but it's it, it's the most open part of the area that we have but but the as i said the lessons that we learned if you build up the stocks then you you start to have options about how you exploit it it's when it comes to the idea of the island obviously as as a biosphere incorporating sort of sea coast and and hinterland and everything else in between how much of a defence mechanism does that act in light of, you mentioned before, invasive species? Yeah. I think biospheres are, are really, it's an interesting and important concept, and particularly here because because it's an umbrella for the whole island. It includes, as you said, all the land and all the sea. So we can have whole-scale plans that that cover the whole of Manx territory. And one of the things that I appears really obvious is that you can't manage the sea in isolation from the land. A lot of the human activities that happen on land, whether it's how we manage runoff, rainwater, catchment management, um, nutrient inputs into the system, whatever it might be, end up in the sea. And so you don't want to poorly manage one part of the system only to then have the problem occur in the sea where everything ends up. So the idea of integrating everything from the tops of the mountains to the edges of the territorial sea is, is quite an important one. Um, and I think biosphere as a concept will help achieve that. I think it will help achieve it not only for for government Policymakers, scientists, etc., but also for the public because they will start thinking about because everyone will start thinking about okay, what I do here affects out there, and so um, I, uh, as we said before, awareness raising of all of these things. If you don't think about it, then then why why would you care or how could you start to care? So I think uh, all of these things are really about raising awareness and starting to think of the environment that we live in as a whole and not as separate parts, because managing separate parts is, it might be useful for managers, but actually it's much less effective than managing things as a whole. Coming on to in invasive species, really, I suppose, and um, perhaps how does the island compare, particularly the island's waters, how do they, how do they compare to, you know, neighbouring jurisdictions, neighbouring countries? Sure, so... Invasive species is an interesting one, and it, and it's quite a significant threat if you if you take it as a as a whole as a global issue. We are an island, and to some extent, we're therefore separated from a lot of transmission routes, for want of a better word. Um, but we are an island that has a lot of boat traffic, for example. So I know most about the marine side of things, um, and it, there is an almost an inevitability. Um, that we will get more marine invasive species onto the island. Um, DEFA have been working with uh, our colleagues at DOI, and it's actually part of the Convention on Biological Diversity that we've signed up to, um, is that we come up with uh, management plans for invasive species, both on land, in freshwater, and in, in marine systems. And we have a marine invasive species plan, and we're, we're currently working on the implementation part of it, i.e. what do we do if 
if this happens and it's a serious a serious organism and it, it has uh, potential risk um so it's it's a risk management situation but it does require monitoring as we said before it requires awareness so that people using the water know what to look for and report it and then you know, government can then can then move in and, and determine what to do you you mentioned about obviously boat traffic of course given the island's ge- uh, geography what what kind of um, biosecurity is in place at marinas and our ports and our harbours, for example. Sure, and uh, I mean, if you if you're thinking about marine biosecurity, then those are clearly the places that get the most traffic are, are the important, um, the weakest links, I suppose, in in the system. And so monitoring that, and that's primarily why we we work with harbours and coast guard within DOI um, to set up. Um, everything from settlement plates, where which are, are plates put in the water which organisms will settle out on, and then you can have a look and see if there's anything that shouldn't be there. Um, to even, the, the harbours are checked uh, fairly regularly by, by divers as part of the, the, the harbours um, activities. And so if they're involved in it and know what to look for, then they can, they can report on these things o- over time. So who are the biggest culprits then, I suppose, in terms of the invaders? Oh, in terms of the actual organisms? Yeah, no, not the people. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole range of things, and it, it, it really does cover um, everything from algae to crustaceans, fish perhaps less so. But, I mean, one of the things that we're doing when we, when we develop an implementation... So getting back, we, have, we reckon we've got about a dozen... And, marine non-native species on the island and actually just last week I was down in Benacaraku um, and Sargassum muticum which is the the wireweed, it's a seaweed with tiny, it's a kind of yellowish seaweed with um, that floats on the surface and it has tiny little air bubbles in it um, and it's really quite obvious once you get your eye in and it's, we've been monitoring it for quite a few years, it's been on the island for, for a long time um, and it, it's pretty much everywhere um, as far as we know, that isn't causing significant problems, but it's one of at least a dozen that we know of that are already here. Again, none of them are so far causing us any particular problems, but there are a few species on our list and have caused problems in waters, well, within the Irish Sea, in fact, in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, in, in the northwest of England, in Wales. The, perhaps the most famous one is, is actually a sea squirt, which is it's called a carpet sea squirt, um, and it's a colonial, a colonial animal, an invertebrate, which really, as it sounds, covers um, structures, and it, it can it can spread and grow really very quickly, and it basically coats and covers and blocks all sorts of structures. So it's a it's a potential threat not only to the existing habitats and species that live there, but also to infrastructure, whether it's boats or inlet pipes or, or whatever it might be. And there have been examples of that not too very far away, uh, not so far away, um, where the cleanup costs of those have been really quite significant. Um, in marinas in North Wales, for example, they've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds cleaning that up and... Um, ongoing monitoring so so when we've been developing our action planning for for marine invasive species part of that is is focusing on particular species the ones that are the biggest threat and what we would do if 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 those turn up 
I want to come on to something. Um, I was at a talk uh, that you were involved in a few months ago. It was at the Irish Sea Centre. Yep. Um, and just the idea of a sort of banding together of um, you know various organisations with a vested interest in the ocean, particularly at this time when we we talks of recovery and sort of questions on 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 health and stuff. How how valuable is the idea of sort of unity at this time? I I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, we're an island of ninety thousand people, or so. Um, we're slap bang in the middle of everything, so. When it comes to things like invasive species, we're linked into the UK um, invasive species group, and so we're in regular communications with them, and so we we share information, we share um, awareness raising schemes, etc. And, and those are promoted through things like the British Irish Council last year. And again, we've got a, an invasive species week coming up where we sort of raise awareness. So, so local collaboration. Um, is, is really important and as you mentioned the Irish Sea Centre is really aiming at, at trying to do that is coordinate a lot of the the data and the expertise and the experience and having that resource available the Port Erin Marine Lab was here for a hundred years and collected an awful lot of information um, while the lab has gone the data exists in published form but it gets increasingly difficult to access it. There are still quite a lot of people on the island who who work there, and so there is um, there is quite still quite a lot of, of expertise on the island for it. And so I, again, I think that idea that the Irish Sea Centre com- conference was was aimed at was to bring those those resources together and just make sure that the mechanisms are still in place for us to share. And I, 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 th- I think that's also a characteristic of, of an island community generally, is that we, we have to get along and we have to collaborate on, on common threats. Um, and I think we do that actually pretty well. So in some, in some respects, we're quite good at collaborative work. We're, we're small compared to a lot of our neighbours um, and we're stronger working together with them than we would be by ourselves. I just want to touch on the the marine biological station. Um, I don't know. Did you ever work there when it was in in function? It seems to have an incredible story of the number of people that have gone through it. It seems like the island has become this this hub, uh, uh, you know, historically for marine biologists. Is it not a great shame that that hub is no longer there? Given what you were referring to, the island being in the middle of all, of all of this, should should something not be there? <laughs> I, I personally, I agree. My the first time I came to the island was two thousand and four, um, when I was taken on as a staff member there. Um, it was the last, uh, as it turned out, the second last year before it closed. Um, but it was it was quite dear to me in that sense because my supervisor um, had been there, and his supervisor was still working there, Andy Brand, um, and. So all through my career, the Port Erin Lab has has been important, and particularly because of its association with scallops. So I've worked on scallops for most of my career. But it it's true what you say. If you go to almost any marine biological conference or or meeting around the world, there's someone there from Port Erin, usually in quite senior positions by now. And so it has been... It, it it was and and these things started in the Victorian days, you know, turn of 
late 1800s, early 1900s, and they were set up when there's a bit more philanthropy in the world and universities could, could set these sorts of things up. Um, and, and times change, and unfortunately, the, the, the financial commitment to places like that is, is, is quite significant, and they got some of them did get lost over time. Some of the data sets are actually continued, so we have the time series of, of water temperature and water quality um, still being collected off Port Erin by government. And that data set is actually it's 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 available online. The the NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric um, uh, body in, in the US, use that as one of their time series to monitor to monitor long term temperature changes. We, we talked about this critical point that we're at now as an island and perhaps in a global perspective. Do we not need infrastructure in place to really have a, a hotbed of research to be doing the cutting edge stuff? There's certainly an argument for some infrastructure, but as society has changed, communications are a lot easier. And so there's another argument that things become a bit more mobile. And so one of the problems with the Marine Lab is that it costs millions of pounds a year to maintain. Um, Maybe you're better putting all of that kit onto a boat that is accessible all the way around, or you make arrangements or relationships with places that can do that kind of um, scientific work. So, for example, here on, on the island, we've got um, we've had a, a long-term relationship with Bangor University that do a lot of our um, fishery science, but uh, um, uh, also a lot of our um, marine biological uh, work as well. So we benefit from having students coming through the place for months at a time, etc. So the idea that you, you don't necessarily have to maintain all infrastructure, but if you make relationships that allow the work to be done, then that, 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 that can certainly cover it. But I do think that there is a requirement for baseline monitoring, and we do that through the government lab. Um, I think that's really important because because while students and projects can come and go or, or scientists can come and go, there is a fundamental requirement for, for that baseline long-term data that, that has to be maintained by by the island in in that sense. Well, is the team big enough? The staffing and the resources, do you think, given how the hotbed of marine life that we are on the island? It's never big enough, is it? Um, you, so, so you end up doing the, the, the bare essentials. You could always do more, but I think so long as the basics are covered. Um, what, one, of, what, one of the important ideas is that if, if you're... Because the Isle of Man is in the middle of the Irish Sea, it has good biodiversity, it has good infrastructure, um, and it has the support, then we are actually an attractive place for people to come and work. So so long as we're open for business, um, then I think the work can be done. There's also, as as we've as we've seen um, offshore developments, inshore developments even, we've seen contractors coming in and, and undertaking... Uh, sonar surveys of the seabed etc then we can as part of the process we can ask for those data to be provided to government um, and make therefore made freely available so that we 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 keep up to date with with things like bathymetry the depths and 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 hazards etc that are in our waters Um, so so there are ways of collecting data in in this day and age without a central infrastructure point but it's a balance and i think um we, we do need to 
continue to coordinate and facilitate the sharing of information because as we've seen recently we're not living in bubbles um the air the water it, it moves around and what happens in one place does affect what happens in other places i suppose just to kind of round this off because we touched on a lot of stuff and um particularly sort of the health and the words that keep sort of reappearing is recovery and improvement um and i guess the picture is it doesn't well you've alluded to earlier that it perhaps it, it's very difficult to understand if it mirrors what's going on on land because there's so many other different factors and of course it's very difficult to access but is it an optimistic picture for you it depends on which day you ask me i i i have to say i i was really delighted to get the marine nature reserves and in, in the way that they are we had those closed areas before but i think having them in the form that they are with the experience that we've had of managing the one in Ramsey is really a big step forward. I think, as I said before, it, they, they are a security level for us. It means we can, we have more options. Um, so the things I, I suppose that concern me are, are the, the aspects that we can't control locally. Um, the existential threat of climate change. So that's the biggest, an ocean acidification are big yeah. things. I mean, we're taking steps in terms of uh, re reducing greenhouse gas and looking at sustainable energy sources and everyone can can play a part in that. And, and government, whether it's here or anywhere else, should have and will have programmes in place to reduce our reliance on carbon producing activities, no question, that's important. And that then leads into ocean acidification. And, and to be honest, the ocean acidification is the one that really scared me quite a lot is because it it doesn't take terribly much to affect any life stage of, of organisms that we depend on, whether it's larval scallops or adult scallops. Some of them are susceptible at different times. And so if you cut any of those chains, then those life cycles, then, then you, you know, you, you can run into problems quite quite quickly. And And in the middle, we have things like collaborative management of fisheries resources or collaborative development of wind farms and, and, and the fact that we all need to be on the same page in, in the regional area to make sure that what happens elsewhere not close by doesn't affect us and vice versa. So um, looking ahead to things like... Fish Are you optimistic? <laughs> Am I optimistic? I think, you know, I, I haven't been in the past but then in recent in recent weeks actually i think humans are particularly good at responding to a crisis it's a pity that it takes a crisis to 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 galvanize action um because we're clearly capable of doing it beforehand but people like to wait till the last minute society likes to wait till the last minute so i've been in uh, i've been uh, i've been enlight enlightened and enthused by by what's been happening recently so I think we can we can we can resolve a lot of these sorts of problems, the big problems that we have in in, in the environment and and in the oceans, because they really do underpin so much of what we do, and I don't know that we're we're fully aware of it all the time, and and if it did disappear, we would become aware of it really quickly. Um, Just talking then about you feeling quite enthused about recent developments, um, obviously the issue sort of environmentally and at least 
existentially with, with with climate change is becoming this this climate emergency and you're saying that how how we all kind of pull together in in times of crisis um that's certainly that kind of framing of it, of the issue it is going to raise awareness surely yeah i think so um if you look around the world the the, the the there has been in recent years a range of opinion from climate change deniers to doom and gloom it's happening tomorrow and um, i think as things balance out and people become more aware of it they make their own assessment of it and i think it's fairly clear that we have serious issues to deal with and in that sense there's less room for I mean, this becomes a personal opinion. There's less room for people that f refuse to believe it and think it can all continue on as it's been. I think all the evidence that I've certainly seen suggests we can't continue doing things the way we have been doing. The impacts are clear to see. And when you stop doing them, things get better. You know, it, it's, it's, it's as clear as that. And the more people who understand what the problems are, what the implications of those problems are for them and find ways to to fix it on an individual level or contribute to the solutions on an individual level then as i said you know human society has, has survived a lot of things and and that gives get, gives hope because we, we can achieve a lot but i do think we'll end up modifying what we do quite a lot it might be a case of having to adapt rather than prevent something for sure and 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 all organisms on the planet have to adapt to environmental change whether that environmental change is brought on by our activities the process of adaptation is the same and things have been adapting and evolving since first bits of life turned up um, so I think and interestingly I was I was recently talking about about these general sorts of issues um, in a presentation, that, and one of the things you sort of learn as a biologist is that islands are frequently the places where adaptation is, is most extreme, where environmental conditions are so different. And, and if they change, there, there are loads of examples around the world where changes in environment have led to extinction or, or rapid adaptation or evolution even in species. And, and so sometimes I think places like the Isle of Man, where we actually have to rely on our environment much more than than elsewhere, we can actually lead the way because we quickly come to realise how dependent we are on it. And so we have no choice but to adapt quickly and find solutions. And that then translates, we can be an example to many other places. Um, the, the, the biosphere concept, again, last time we talked, I'd just come back from the, the biosphere, island and coastal biosphere conference in, in Menorca. And all of those islands, very quick, they're the ones that note sea level change. They're the ones that see mounting plastic because there's nowhere for it to go. So they're the ones that come up with the solutions. You can't put it in a landfill and ignore it because there is no, there's not enough land to go around. So islands are interesting experimental areas that can provide solutions to the to the wider world and i don't think we should forget that the things that we do here are globally relevant um and whether it's scallop fishery management that we've been talking to the wider world about for decades um or whether it's how we manage plastics or 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 any other uh, human waste etc then there are there are things things that we can teach the rest of the world